Let's open this morning with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, and Lord, we thank you for the fact that Jesus declared that Moses wrote about him. We thank you that he opened the minds of the disciples and showed to them all that was written concerning him and the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And Father, we thank you and praise you that you have accomplished salvation in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do exactly what Paul speaks of in Romans 15 when he when he says that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Father, we ask that you would instruct us that by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Lord, we pray that you would train our eyes to see the way the Bible hangs together, that we might have insight about what you will do in the future. We ask that you would help us to understand what the scriptures indicate about the consummation of all things. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to use the Bible to interpret our lives and this world in which we live. And we ask that you would help us to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus who, who bore our sins in his body on the tree and left us an example that we should follow in his steps so, Father, help us to look to him for our justification and sanctification and help us to be those who lay down our lives for others to benefit them as he did for us. We love you. We pray that you would thrill our hearts now with the truth, and we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, this morning what I'd like to do is consider together um, what in the world John is saying in John 19. So I, I'd like to invite you to open up to John 19, and I want to read uh, just a few statements here from John chapter 19, um, and then I want us to work backward from there to figure out, try to figure out exactly how John's interpretive perspective is informing what he's saying in this passage. So um, I'd like to begin reading in John chapter 19, verse 32, where we read, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now what I want to focus in on is there in verse 36, these things took place that the scriptures that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken so as we think about biblical theology um, i've i've suggested that the definition or or at least a good working definition of biblical theology is the attempt to 
to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. So the question that, that presents itself to us is, how is John interpreting the Old Testament? How is he claiming that this scripture is being fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken? So to get our arms around this and, and the dilemma, let me invite you now to turn back to Exodus chapter 12, where we find the scripture that John has referenced. And in Exodus chapter 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Those last words of verse 46 are the words that John is claiming are being fulfilled when the bones of Jesus are not broken, but instead his side is pierced. So we can see here that this statement in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, is not a future prediction. In other words, Moses is not looking down through the corridor of time and saying something like, in the distant future, something like Numbers 24, right, where Balaam says, I see him, but not now. Uh, I behold him, but not near. And then he talks about how the scepter shall arise and the star shall come up. Um, that's not what Moses is doing. Moses is not looking into the future and prophesying that one day the Messiah will be crucified and none of his bones will be broken. No, Moses is giving regulations about what you do with the Passover lamb. And um, just to cut straight to the chase, I think the kind of fulfillment that John is claiming is a typological fulfillment. That is, John is not saying Moses is predicting in a predictive prophecy kind of way that the Messiah's bones won't be broken. Um, John is claiming that there is a pattern of events that is related to the Passover lamb, and that pattern of events is now finding its fulfillment in these things that are taking place in Jesus, including the fact that his bones are not broken. Now, is this a legitimate interpretation of the Passover? Well, as, we, as I indicated last night, I think that um, there are indications that Moses understood that Israel was going to be exiled from the land, and then he understood that the Lord was going to restore them, that, that there would be an exile, and then that there would be a new act of redemption that would bring them back to the land. And, and what I want to... Uh, suggest today um, through what we see in the Psalms is that David picked up on this. David picked up on the fact that Moses and, and other writers between Moses and David had made these kinds of suggestions, uh, for instance, Joshua, and, and David understood that the pattern of the Lord's salvation at the Exodus was significant for understanding how the Lord saves his people. And then what I want to argue today is that David presents the way the Lord saved him after the exodus pattern, so to speak. In other words, 
the Lord presents, uh, David presents the Lord going into action on his behalf as though the Lord is doing something like what he had done at the Exodus again. And this puts us on a trajectory that is fulfilled when the authors of the New Testament present that pattern being fulfilled in Jesus. So let me invite you to look with me at Psalm 18. And um, I want to draw your attention first to the superscription of this psalm, which says, Psalm 18, the superscription, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, I think that, that these superscriptions should be factored in to our interpretation of these psalms. Um, I, in other words, um, I think there's no reason not to use that superscription as we interpret the psalms. There are, there are uh, textual reasons for this. We, we don't have a single manuscript of the psalms that lacks the superscriptions. And then those, those few places where uh, people suggest that the superscription gives inaccurate information, I think can be explained in other ways, and we'll look at one of those in just a moment in Psalm 34. So I say that to say this. In Psalm 18, David is talking about the way the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He's telling us what this psalm is about. So, so the psalms are not an opportunity for us to play pop psychologist. They're not an opportunity for us to go into this sort of abstract, um, you know, uh, free association with whatever's going on in our souls or in our minds. The Psalms are rooted in the historical narratives of the Old Testament. So we should read the Psalms against the rest of the Old Testament. That, that's how we should interpret these things. David starts off in verses 1 through 3 extolling the Lord. And, and talking about his love and devotion for the Lord. He says in verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So there, there, there's the issue. David is praising the Lord who has rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from Saul. Now David is going to start describing the difficulty that he was in, that he was faced with from those enemies and from Saul. And he's going to describe this, this difficulty, this danger, in figurative, poetic, metaphorical ways. So he says in verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me. Uh, this is an interesting image. It says, though, death is being personified. And it's as though death has cords, as though, as though death is a cowboy with a lasso, and he's trying to, to get those cords around David. And then he switches the metaphor in the middle of verse 4, the torrents of destruction assailed me. Torrents sounds like rushing water, doesn't it? And, and I think perhaps there's, there's something like flood imagery at work here. And then he says in verse 5, the cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. So these are all uh, ways of, of describing perhaps something like Saul's 
spear being flung at David. Or we can maybe imagine David realizing as he's gone over to um, Gath uh, that, that these Philistines are dangerous and that they're not happy about him and that they think that um, maybe it's a good opportunity to stamp out one of these Israelite champions. And then he tells us in verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple, no, no temple on earth at this point, no temple built in David's day, so he's speaking of the temple in heaven. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Now David is going to describe the Lord going into action on his behalf. And I don't want to take the time to go back to Exodus 19 and read this passage, but in Exodus 19, let me just remind you again of what we have there. You have Mount Sinai quaking. There's, There's a great earthquake, and you have the mountain being covered in smoke, and you have lightning flashing, and you have the the blast of a trumpet, and and this thick darkness where God is. And um, that imagery is also reminiscent of Exodus 15, where you have the thick darkness and the smoking fire pot passing between the pieces. So you have that kind of imagery when the Lord enters into this covenant with Abraham, and then you have that kind of imagery, which... I'm not suggesting it's not historical. I'm just saying similar occurrences at at Mount Sinai as the Lord enters into a covenant with Israel. And now David says here in Psalm 18, verse 7, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Let's just pause and and observe here that David is describing the Lord going into action on his behalf in imagery and in terminology that is reminiscent of the way the Lord came down at Mount Sinai. Often, and I think this is a massive red herring in Psalm scholarship. I think it's, it's terribly unfortunate that this is prevalent. But often, people... Old Testament scholars look at this psalm and immediately their minds go to some, you know, extra-biblical ancient Near Eastern parallel. They should look at the Old Testament first. They should look at inner biblical parallels first. They should go to Exodus 19 and Genesis 15 first, not to these other, other traditions. And then we want to think about what is going on here and, and what David might be intending to communicate as he makes these moves. I submit to you that David means to associate the Lord delivering him from the hand of all his enemies and from Saul and the Lord entering into this covenant with him, making this promise to him that one of his descendants is going to be placed on the throne and rule forever. David means to associate that in some profound way with what happens in Exodus 19 and 20, and with what happens in Genesis 15. He continues in Psalm 18, verse 9, he says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered 
his voice. This is just like Mount Sinai. There's thunder, and then the Lord begins to speak from the from the top of Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 14, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And then verse 15, before I read verse 15 actually, let me read you these words from Exodus chapter 15 verse 8. Um, Exodus 14, they pass through the Red Sea. Exodus 15, they sing the song of the sea. And in the midst of Exodus 15, we read these words. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. This Exodus 15, verse 8. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So the, the parting of the Red Sea is depicted in terms of the blast of the Lord's nostrils, which causes the waters to pile up on either side so that Israel can pass through on dry, dry land. Psalm 18, verse 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. David is quoting Exodus 15, 8, in Psalm 18, 15. Why is he doing this? I would suggest that David is saying something like this. As the Lord rescued me from the hand of all my enemies and from the hand of Saul, he worked for me my own personal version of the Exodus. Now, now maybe that's not exactly the right way to say it. Maybe we should say it something like this. David thinks of the Lord intervening to deliver his people in Exodus terms. So that when David goes to talk about the Lord delivering him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he's going to use the categories and the terminology of the Exodus from Egypt to describe that because, because that's how you talk about the Lord saving his people. And there's more. There's more uh, because what David is going to do next, I think, reflects a profound uh, biblical theological understanding of the role that he plays in God's purposes. So to set this up, let me just remind you of what we saw there in the superscription of Psalm 18, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. And then you remember that when, um, when David uh, said to Nathan, see the ark uh, dwells in a tent, and I live in a house of cedar. And, and Nathan says to David there in 2 Samuel 7, go do all that is in your heart. And then the Lord comes to Nathan that night and he says to him, go and tell my servant David. So, so this is a very profound way of, address, of speaking of David because not that many people in the Old Testament are referred to as the servant of the Lord. One of the very significant persons who has also talked, this way, talked about this way is Moses. Moses, my servant. You know, the, Moses, the servant of the Lord. This kind of language is used. David is now, I think, going to suggest that he plays a role in God's purposes that is similar to the role played by Moses. So before I read verse 16 of Psalm 18, let me remind you of Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, where the daughter of Pharaoh 
We read here in Exodus 2.10, when the child grew older, that's Moses, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Moses' sister brings brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now listen to Psalm 18, verse 16. David says, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. This is language that's very similar, very reminiscent of Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, and I don't think it's accidental. I'm, su- I'm suggesting to you that David is saying something like this. I'm something like a new Moses in God's purposes. And just as God entered into a covenant with, with Israel that, that had Moses as its intermediary, God has now entered into a covenant with me, with me as a kind of mosaic sort of intermediary. And just as God delivered Israel under the leadership of Moses and then brought them out of slavery and put them into this land of promise, so now God is working an Exodus-style deliverance as as he delivers me from the hand of all my enemies and from Saul, and then establishes me on the throne over Israel. We continue, verse 17, He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Now think about, think about enemies that were too mighty. We can think of things like David and Goliath, right? Goliath is this mighty enemy. We can think of how Saul vastly outnumbers David. He's got this whole army that he's chasing David around the wilderness with. We can think of other circumstances, no doubt, where David is outnumbered and the Lord overcomes David's enemies. And that's similar, isn't it, to a body of people that come out of Egypt and they come through the wilderness and they arrive at the promised land, and they see in that land people who are descendants of the Anakim, and they perceive that they're like grasshoppers in their own sight in relation. So, and then then when they they go to take the land, the Lord uh, says in, in Deuteronomy, you are going into that land to face seven nations greater and more numerous than yourself. So they're vastly outnumbered, very similar, um, ways of the Lord conquering on behalf of Israel and then David. Then look at verse 19 of Psalm 18. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That that broad place, I think, is like the land of promise. So there's this this Exodus-style deliverance, Sinai covenant kind of language, uh, Moses drawn out of the water, Red Sea language, and then what looks to me like like a land of promise kind of language, all here in Psalm 18, as David describes the way that the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, if I'm correct about this, it means that, that David has begun to interpret the way the Lord delivered him against the backdrop of the exodus from Egypt. It also means that you've got an exodus-style Well, you've got the the Exodus deliverance, and then that that Israel's psalmist, David, has seen that pattern of events and applied it to his own life, which presents us with a repetition of the pattern, doesn't it? And as we have these repetitions, 
the significance of these things begins to grow. And as we see these correspondences between David and the Exodus, I think later biblical authors begin to think, well, we have, we have these repetitions. Perhaps we're going to see more of this in the future. And in that way, typology takes on a predictive aspect so that you see the pattern in the past, then you see it repeated, and you begin to expect this is the way the Lord is going to deliver his people in the future. Now turn with me, if you will, over to Psalm 34. Now, um, here in Psalm 34, we have another superscription, and um, this, is one of, this is one of the superscriptions that people sometimes look at and say, this is why we shouldn't trust these superscriptions. And the implication that they're, that they're um, suggesting is the superscriptions are historically unreliable. So look at, look at the, the superscription here in Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, you, you know the narratives from Samuel. There was no Abimelech there. It wasn't Abimelech. It was Akish, the king of Gath. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to operate out of my presuppositions, okay? I'm not going to cede ground to the, the doubters and, and the unbelievers. I'm going to assume that, that, that my presuppositions are correct, and I'm going to see if I can come up with a plausible um, interpretation of this that would allow it allow the text to stand, and that would assume the text is, is, is true. So um, I'm going to assume, since the New Testament authors in many places say things like David says and David wrote, I'm going to assume David wrote this psalm. And then I'm going to assume David knew the, the, the name of that king, right? I mean, Akish gave to David this town of Ziklag. David knows what's going on. David has not forgotten Akish's name and made a historical error and put Abimelech where there was Akish. That being the case, if we, if we grant those two things, we've got some possibilities. One possibility is that Abimelech is like a title that kings in this region take on. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. I, I prefer this other possibility. And this possibility re recalls the narratives of Genesis, where in Genesis, both Abraham and Isaac have encounters with guys named Aki, um, not Akish, Abimelech. And both Abraham and Isaac do the sister fib thing with their wives with guys named Abimelech. And in the Isaac narrative, this guy named Abimelech seems to be a Philistine. Now, now think about what this might be suggesting. If let's 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 consider the possibility that David intentionally used the name Abimelech, even though it was Akish, because he wanted to remind people of Abraham and Isaac and their trouble with the Philistines and perhaps wanted to forge a connection between himself and Abraham and Isaac and between the Philistines who troubled Abraham and Isaac, the, these foreigners in the land, and the Philistines that he's dealing with in the land. If that's what's happening, what David is doing is forging typological identifications between the seed of the serpent in the land in Abraham and Isaac's day and the seed of the serpent in the land in his own day. And the way that he accomplishes that is by calling Akish Abimelech. 
That's a possibility. Uh, I'm inclined to that interpretation. I might be wrong, uh, but I think that's what's going on. Now look at, look at what, goes, what happens here in Psalm 34. David begins very similarly to Psalm 18, the opening verses. I will bless the Lord. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Verse 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Then he begins again to talk about his difficulty. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Now turn on your, you know, your biblical imagination. Raise your antenna for other texts in the Bible where you've got people looking at the Lord and then their faces begin to shine. What, what am I suggesting? What am I? Moses, that's right. Moses, he would come out from meeting with the Lord and his face shone. Those who look to the Lord, David says, are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Notice how it's not singular, not I look to the Lord and my face shone, but those who do this. There's going to be a tension in this psalm between the one and the many, between the singular righteous man and then the group of righteous people who are gathered around David. Verse 6, he says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Before I read verse 7, let me, let me remind you of Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. There, we read about how as Israel came out of Egypt, they look back and the army of Pharaoh is, is now pursuing them. And what happens is the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud, both, both entities, move from being in front of Israel, leading them to being behind Israel, and, and the, the angel of the Lord and the cloud are between Israel and Egypt so that the one doesn't come near the other all the night long. That seems to be what David has in mind when he says in Exodus 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So another detail from the Exodus narrative that, that is being picked up, and it's not, it's not a literal correspondence, right? It's not as though David was led into Philistine territory by a pillar of cloud and the angel of the Lord and then, and then encamped around him, no. But, but he, he's, he's fleeing from Saul and, and he escapes from Saul and he finds himself over there, over there in Philistine territory and he has to do this ruse where he acts like a madman and he gets, he gets out of that, that tough spot. But he sees the Lord delivering him and, and he... He understands that the Lord has delivered him in a way that is parallel to or similar to the way that the Lord delivered Israel at the Exodus. Verse, before we read verse 8, um, Exodus 24, 11. This is after the Lord speaks the ten words in Exodus 20, and then he, he gives this initial deposit of, of the book of the covenant in Exodus 20 through 23. And then in Exodus 24, uh, Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders of Israel, they go up on the mountain, and it says in Exodus 24, 11, one of the really remarkable statements in the Bible, it says, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So there's, there's this covenant meal that is partaken of, and 
That is perhaps what is in David, David's mind as he says in, in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then he goes on uh, calling people to fear the Lord, to trust the Lord. Um, and then let's skip down now to verse 17. In Psalm 34, 17... David says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So it's clear from the plural pronouns, them and their, that we're not talking about an individual righteous person. We're talking about a group of righteous people. And if we consider the context here uh, that the superscription gives us, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Uh, in those narratives in Samuel, we read in, in 1 Samuel 22 about how um, around this time, um, all the losers in Israel gathered to David, the people who were in debt and the people who were bitter of soul and anyone that had a complaint. They all, they all come to David. And, and one of the remarkable features of the narrative of Samuel, is that it, it's, it's apparently out of that group of people that, that gather around David that the mighty men arise. And I'm inclined to think that the, the, the narrator of Samuel, the author of Samuel, wants us to conclude that these people's character has been transformed through their association with David. Their, their proximity to David, their experience of his leadership has has uh, ennobled them and, and sanctified them and made them godly and righteous and courageous. So David here in Psalm 34, 17, when he, when he speaks of these, this group of righteous people, I think the people that he's talking about are the people who are aligned with him. These are the people who respect the prophet Samuel. They know that Samuel has anointed David is king. They see that Saul is conducting himself in wickedness. He's setting up monuments to himself. He's not obeying the charge that Samuel has given to Saul to go and stamp out the Amalekites. And so they conclude that guy is now disobedient to the Lord and this new king has been anointed. We're going to align ourselves with David, this man after God's own heart. And, and David says, when these righteous people cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And then he's going to switch from the plural righteous in verse 17 to the individual righteous man in verse 19. He says in Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And if we think in terms of the historical context, David can be seen, I think, to be speaking of the way that the Lord delivers uh, him out of all the afflictions that face, that face him. Now, if David is putting this together, I think he's probably thinking about earlier parallels to the, the pattern of events in his own life. He's, he probably has in mind the way that the Lord raised up Moses, and Moses faced all these afflictions from from Pharaoh's court, even prior to going back to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, um, Moses was rejected by the Israelites. And then, and then once they get out into the wilderness, the Israelites are grumbling against 
Moses, and, and they're picking up stones at various points to stone him. And, and David is probably looking at the pattern of events in Moses' life, maybe seeing correspondences between the way that Moses was afflicted and then eventually exalted and the way that Joseph was afflicted and then eventually exalted. And he seems to be concluding, the Lord had Samuel the prophet anoint me, so I am certainly going to reign as king over Israel, but I'm being afflicted. The Lord is going to deliver me out of all these afflictions and keep his word, and I am going to reign. And if this pattern can be seen in the Psalms, we might understand why someone would arise who would say something along, along the lines of, was it not necessary for the Messiah first to suffer and then to enter into his glory? I think in Luke 24, Jesus is saying to his disciples, essentially, look at the pattern in the Psalms. You've got this righteous sufferer in the Psalms, and, and that corresponds to Joseph and Moses and Elijah and all the prophets. There's this pattern of affliction and suffering, and then they're, they're vindicated. Didn't that pattern have to be fulfilled? Now, let's skip over verse 20 for just a moment to verse 21, because I think verses 21 and 22 show us that David is thinking in terms of his enemies who, who include the Philistines, but who are also wicked Israelites. Wicked Israelites who are pursuing him through the wilderness and trying to kill him and who are trying to keep him from becoming king. So he says in verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems, redeems is an, is an Exodus word. Um, don't believe uh, Old Testament scholars who say things like what Sandra Richter says in her book, The Epic of Eden. I think that's a really good book. It's helpful at many points. I enjoyed reading it. Uh, but she says uh, the redemption language in the Old Testament is non-theological language. It, it's just language that comes from the marketplace. It, it, it doesn't have anything theological about it. And, and, and I wanted to, to shout at her, what about the Exodus? The, the redemption language in the Old Testament is significant because of the Exodus. And, and you can't, I will not believe you if you tell me that anytime they use redemption language, it's not colored by Exodus overtones. This is the foundational moment of Israel's history. This makes them a nation. It, it, it defines the way that God saves people. So I think when David says here in in Psalm 34, 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. This is a word that's going to be colored by the way the Lord redeemed Israel at the Exodus. Then he says at the end of verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. A statement that's reminiscent of the end of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks, it calls the kings to be wise. And then it says at the end of verse 12, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The start of that verse was Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For in his wrath, for, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the son. None of those, Psalm 34, 22, who take refuge in him, the Lord, will be condemned. How do you take refuge in the Lord? You align yourself with the king that, that the prophet has anointed. You, you, you take refuge in the Lord by, by saying, I'm going to be identified with the king that the Lord has established over Israel. And then who are the wicked? Psalm 2, 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a a vain thing? The people gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the wicked. The seed of the serpent are those who are dishonoring Abraham, those who are aligned against the Lord and against his Messiah. And David is saying, affliction is going to slay the wicked. And then everybody that's aligned with me and thereby aligned with the Lord, they are going to be delivered. How's this going to happen? This brings us back to verse 20. David says here in verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. It's clearly language drawn from Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Clearly language that that is, is invoking the way that none of the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. What is David doing? Is David suggesting that he's going to die as a Passover lamb. I don't think David is suggesting he's going to die. I do think David means to invoke the way that the bones of the Passover lamb are not broken, and then through the Passover, the people of the Lord are delivered, and what happens to the wicked? What happens to the Egyptians? They're slain in the Red Sea. And I think what David is saying is something like this. When the Lord brings me safely through this period of affliction, it's going to be like the Lord delivering Israel at the exodus from Egypt. And I'm going to be preserved whole. None of my bones are going to be broken. I'm going to reign on the throne. And everyone who's aligned with me is going to be delivered from all their enemies. And, and they are going to, be, they're, they're going to be redeemed. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Meanwhile, everybody that's opposed to me, they're going to be slain. And, and Saul falls in battle uh, on Mount Gilboa. And then um, Ishbosheth, who sets himself up as king against David, he's murdered. And then um, all, all, all those who were pursuing Saul's cause, they fall, they, they die, and David is established as king. When David uses this language, though, he he puts the anointed king of Israel in the place of the Passover lamb. And it's as though the anointed king of Israel is in the Passover lamb, is is in the place of the Passover lamb, and through through his preservation and deliverance, all those who are aligned with him are also preserved and delivered. I think it's an installment in the typological pattern. I think it also adds to the typological pattern the identification of Israel's anointed king with the Passover lamb. And then that is seen by John as being fulfilled, perhaps in a way, that that explodes everybody's categories and expectations when Jesus dies on the cross and then is raised from the dead and none of his bones are broken, and John claims fulfillment for this in John 19.36, not a predictive fulfillment in, in the sense of, you know, a verbal prophecy that states something like Micah 5.2. I think Micah 5.2 is a predictive kind of prophecy. Uh, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is a, a typological pattern kind of, of um prophecy in that we're looking forward for a future fulfillment of this pattern that will, that will uh, be 
escalated in significance that will, that will transcend anything that has happened before and that will ultimately accomplish the redemption that the exodus and that the deliverance of David and, and many other things were pointing forward to all along. I think that's what John is doing there in John 19. Now, with that before us, uh, what I want to do now um, is, is take you over to Acts chapter 2 and um, suggest that John is not the only person reading the Old Testament this way. Um, so sometimes you hear people say things like, um, they'll read Luke 24. I've heard a lot of people say this kind of thing. They'll read Luke 24 and, um, and they'll say, man, wouldn't it have been great to have been with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and to know what passages he pointed to and to know how Jesus interpreted those passages. And, and um, as, as I have studied these texts, um, there's, there's a part of me that wants to sort of uh, somewhat um, derisively respond, just read the New Testament. Just read what the apostles say. What Jesus has done is, is taught the apostles how to read the Old Testament. How do you think they're interpreting the Old Testament in the New Testament? The way he taught them to. So I think if you want to know what Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, look at the New Testament. So um, uh, let's look here at Acts chapter 2, and I want to pick this up in um, verse 22, where Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now that last assertion, it was not possible for the Messiah to be held by death, is now going to be buttressed from Psalm 16. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had the experience of, of listening to Old Testament scholars, Old Testament professors, uh, go through Psalm 16 and say something like, David's just talking about himself. David's just talking about his own experience. So let, let's look back at Psalm 16. And um, in a sense, I want to agree. In another sense, I want to say yes, but there's more to it than that. Okay, so let's look together at Psalm 16. This is a miktam of David. He says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. It sounds like another one of these psalms where David is afflicted. He's crying out to the Lord. I have no good apart from you. David is speaking in the first person singular. Look down at verse 7. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. David is clearly speaking about himself, isn't he? He's not, in other words, David is not looking into the future overtly and making prophetic, prophetic statements about his descendant. He's not on the surface doing that. Verse 8, I, David says, have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Notice all the first person singulars. I, me, my, so forth. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Okay, now, in, in the Old Testament, Sheol seems to be conceived of as a place of torment, a place where uh, the dead go and are actually uh, suffering. And, and David seems to be saying, you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol. You're, you're going to deliver me. You're going to preserve me alive. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So at one level, I want to say to the Old Testament scholars, the Old Testament professors who want to insist, David is just talking about himself. I want to say, yes, you're exactly right. Do you think he might be doing anything else? And, and the key to this, and, and before, I, before I say this, let me just give a, a little caveat that um, I've only read this one place. The place I read it was in a student paper written for one of my classes after I had taught this, okay? So, so uh, in other words, I'm out on a limb here. I'm out on a limb, but I think I'm right, okay? You, you, you be a good Berean. You test these things and see if they are so. You're not going to find this necessarily in a, in a commentary on Acts or a commentary on Psalms. Look, at, look, at, look back at Acts chapter 2 and look closely at the first words of verse 25. David says concerning him. Peter claims that David is speaking about the Messiah. Now let's interrogate Peter. Wait a minute, Peter. David is speaking in the first person singular. And you're quoting David in the first person singular. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. And I think Peter would say, exactly. I'm quoting Peter, I'm quoting David, speaking in the first person singular about himself. Now, let's engage in a little, again, let's assume our presuppositions, okay? Let's assume uh, Peter spoke this, Luke accurately represents him, and they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's assume that David wrote this, David knew what he was doing. How do we get from David saying, I saw the Lord always before me, to Peter claiming... David says concerning him, and another presupposition, when later biblical authors interpret earlier biblical scripture, they are correct in their interpretation. They're not making mistakes. So how do we get from point A to point B? Here's a proposal. David knows, David understands that there's a pattern of events that he's experiencing that matches the pattern seen in Joseph and Moses prominently and others and that he is now living through that will be repeated and fulfilled in the life of his descendant. So David knows when he describes his own experience as the righteous sufferer who will be vindicated and preserved, David believes that that is going to be fulfilled in the life of his descendant. Leading me to this proposal. In describing his own experience, David is pointing forward consciously to the experience of his promised descendant. I think this is exactly what Peter says in this passage. Verse 25 of Acts 2, David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
It's like Peter is suggesting, look, these words are not ultimately fulfilled in the historical David. He's dead in the, in the tomb. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, you might say to me, well, Peter's just claiming that David is prophesying. And I'm, and I'm going to say yes, but let's, let's get it right in terms of how David is prophesying. So David is not saying, I saw the Lord always before him because the Lord is at his right hand, he will not be shaken, right? Those Old Testament scholars have a point. David is speaking in the first person singular and the circumstances match David's historical experience. So I think that's right. Yes, David is speaking about his own experience. And yes, David is a prophet and he knows about the oath that God had sworn to him, 2 Samuel 7. And he's foreseeing, I think, in the sense that he sees the patterns previous to him, sees the pattern in his life, and he understands and foresees that the typological pattern is going to be fulfilled and, and um, salvation is going to be accomplished in the life of this descendant that's been promised to him. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So I submit to you that this understanding of Psalm 16, as interpreted in uh, Acts 2 here, matches what Peter says, matches what Luke presents, matches what we have in Psalm 16, matches what we see in Psalm 18, Psalm 34, John 19. It also matches something that we see in Psalm 2. So, so let's conclude by looking together at Psalm 2. And I just want to draw your attention again to the pronouns that are used here. Now, Psalm 2 does not have a superscription. There is no, there is no you know, Psalm of David or something like that at the beginning of Psalm 2. But Acts 4.25 attributes Psalm 2 to David. That's good enough for me. I'm going to assume David wrote this. So he starts off, this, this, uh, these lines I've already quoted, why do the nations rage and so forth. And then look at verse 6. David says, as for me, or the Lord says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the Messiah, the, the king, begins to speak in the first person singular in verse 7. David writes, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now think about the language of 2 Samuel 7. That's not the, what the Lord said, is it? What the Lord said was, he will be a father to me and I will be a son to him. If David is speaking in this psalm, David is speaking of himself as though he's in the place of the promised descendant. And I think this is a, an interpretive clue to what David is doing in the psalms. I think we ought to read the psalms as though David is consciously aware of the fact that in speaking of himself, he is speaking of what will be fulfilled in the life of his descendant. So in the first person singular, David says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten 
you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and so forth. Knowing, those are promises made about his descendant, knowing the pattern of events seen in the lives of Joseph and Moses and others and in his own life are going to be, that pattern of events is going to be repeated and fulfilled in the life of his descendant. Now, if all of this is correct, it establishes that there is a, an interpretive perspective, a hermeneutical perspective that, that is laid out in the Pentateuch by Moses. Moses sees this pattern of affliction and suffering and then exaltation in Joseph's life. Then he sees this pattern of affliction and, exalta- affliction and suffering and then exaltation in his own life. And he consciously puts these things down. And then David comes along and he sees this pattern of affliction and suffering and then exaltation in their lives, sees it in his own life, writes it up, consciously speaking, of the one who would come after, as, as Peter says in Acts 2, being a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, foresaw in the sense that he understood that this pattern would be fulfilled and completed. I think that's what these New Testament authors are claiming about about what Jesus taught and about what David said and about what Moses meant. So the pursuit of biblical theology is the attempt to understand and embrace the perspective of the biblical authors. And if we do that, I think we we can see David putting himself in this Exodus pattern and even putting himself in the place of the Passover lamb. But David, David, I think, understood that his suffering was not going ultimately to redeem the people of God. That, that's going to be f- fulfilled in Jesus. And then, and then writers like Peter, I've already alluded to this passage, use the, the example of Jesus to present a pattern to, to believers. So in, in 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter says... In verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Now it's clear that Peter sees this suffering of Christ as a a penal substitutionary atonement. No question. You cannot take that away. He also sees it as a moral example in this passage. He says in verse 21 there, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 53. So the example of Jesus, we see it in Stephen's life, don't we? Have have you ever noticed all the parallels between uh, the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus in in the Gospel of Luke? You know, they both both, uh, pray for forgiveness. They're they're both innocent and unjustly condemned. There are all these parallels between between Stephen's death and Jesus' death. And I think Luke is suggesting this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means you hold fast to the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God, and you suffer for the gospel in order to benefit other people with this true message. So we want to be those. We want to be those who are described in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, when John writes that they they overcame the dragon, that that great uh, dragon who is the devil and Satan. They overcame him, they conquered him, by the blood of the Lamb, the death of Christ, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Let's pray together.
Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what is in the Scriptures, and we pray that you would keep us from erroneous conclusions about how later biblical authors have interpreted earlier biblical texts. Lord, we ask that you would put us on their trail and and give us humility, but also give us a, a, a persistence and a tenacity to search out what they meant and, and why they say what they say. And help us, Lord, to understand these things. And then, Father, we ask that you would give us boldness, a boldness and a confidence that arises from our awareness that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus, that we are being treated the same way that Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and and Jesus and Stephen and Paul and Peter and the others were treated. And Father, we pray that you would deliver us. We pray that you would keep us faithful unto death and give us grace to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.